Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? Alright, so like, dig this, man. This is like Uncle Francis's wine cellar, right, man? It's like the cut-by-cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast, man. Can you dig that? Can your mind comprehend? (laughs) This is the Cage Club Network production, brother. (laughs) Buonasera, or shall I say, huwaba, huwaba, huwaba. (laughs) Have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez, but... Where's Michael? Dennis Hopper's here, but where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. Then uh, we could start now. Sorry, I got held up. Uh, <laughs> I was lost in the jungle. I wound up uh, like running my own little village. Uh, <laughs> it was like hell getting away from that. <laughs> Is that village the Cage Club Podcast Network? Yeah, right. It's <laughs> right. It's the little civilization we founded in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should go in and have our own little adventure rescuing Joey from from the middle of nowhere New Jersey where he lives or or killing him either way. Well, no, not the not the <laughs> second thing. <laughs> I'm just joking. Anyway, anyway. I know, I know. Today oh, we're wait, talking- is that to suggest that Joey's our Colonel Kurtz of the network? <laughs> that he's at some point gone rogue and just <laughs> doing what he must. Sorry, Joey. I mean, it's not a bad thing. He, he's he's got his his place, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, where was I? Oh, today. <laughs> whoa, we went off on a weird tangent. Today, we're talking Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse from 1991. Of course, this is the famous or infamous behind-the-scenes documentary for the film Apocalypse Now. But before we get into it, mm-hmm. first, Mike, I must remind you and all the nieces and nephews out there to keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer by hitting that subscribe button wherever you're listening google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher while you're there leave us a five star review or a positive rating or a negative one you know it doesn't really matter to me as long as you're listening honestly yeah reviews a review <laughs> a review is a review also, follow us on social media. I am at OhMyRodriguez, O-H-M-Y Rodriguez. The show's page is Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar on Instagram. And Mike, you are the Mikester everywhere. Yeah, pretty much. Just about. Yeah. Anywhere you need to find me. Stir in that pot as always. Uh, yeah, you know me. I'm the resident <laughs> chef. I'm cookie here on the network. I mean, we're not... We're not on the boat quite yet proper, but we're we're building up to getting on the river here. Uh, and I guess, you know, I just, I'll stick on the boat flipping burgers. Never get off the boat, man. Never get off the boat. And of course, this is the wine cellar, so I must drink a wine. But full disclosure, we're recording on a Sunday night. It, it's not been a long weekend, but I'm not in the biggest opening a new bottle of wine drinking mood. So I'm just going to finish that. Oh, yeah. Francis Coppola yeah, yeah, yeah. red blend from the last time that we were talking. Speaking of the last time, mm-hmm. may the fourth continue to be with you, Mike? Yes, and also with you, Brian. Um, 
Let's see. I was trying to see if we should have like run our names through some kind of Jedi name generator <laughs> during that episode, but uh, I guess it's a little too late for that. However, little surprise episode. I'm sure most of you were not expecting us to do a Star Wars thing, but we did R2-D2 Beneath the Dome, which is a little featurette, I guess you could say, on yeah. one of the Star Wars films that Francis features pretty prominently in. Yeah, yeah. And we did it also because, you know, Francis and George go back together founding Zoetrope, which has been a major part of this show for a while now, like just... I feel like once we like latched on to the creation of Zoetrope, we kind of found a little way to talk about everything, you know, <laughs> that was true, like yeah. a nice kind of like binder for everything. And so like this also, you know, took me back to the documentaries they made for the rain people and the Zoetrope docs and stuff. So George and Francis and documentary are like three kind of magic ingredients, I guess. And, you know, George and, and Francis are going to work together with someone else named Michael. Not this guy, but we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. You mentioned that. I'm like, who? Oh, oh yeah. I can't wait for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank Kyle Reinfried for hopping on that episode and helping us talk a little Star Wars. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And speaking of uh, Star Wars. <laughs> Come, walk this way. Take a look. We put the picture's name on everything. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. <laughs> it's really Spaceballs, but you know the tag, Mike. That means the merch stand is open. Mike's merch stand of the episode. What kind of Coppola-themed merch do you have for us today, Mike? So, Brian, this was a rough one. You remember... That surprise episode wasn't just a surprise to our listeners. It was a surprise to me, too. I forgot the order of our <laughs> recordings. And so I had, uh, I was sort of scrambling to find products for that episode for Hearts of Darkness. And I was like, you know, surfboards, um, I don't know, whatever else I was looking for in that episode. But um, I found something new here. I feel like I've done this before, maybe with the White Lotus episode. But I sent you the link. I had to send it to the Facebook chat. I don't know if you got it there. Oh, nice. But this is thematic uh, to the Hearts of Darkness and Apocalypse Now theme in general. Boat holidays in Vietnam. A Find very right. <laughs> different boat holiday in Vietnam, I got to say. Yes. But this one sounds yes. lovely. Find the right boat holiday for you in Vietnam. There are 52 boating trips to choose from, you know, range one day in length to 21 days, et cetera, et cetera, and all that. And so, like, I sent you a list of 52 boat holiday packages in Vietnam. Uh, and they, they're expensive, but, like, you know, not that crazy. Like, nine days, $1,000. I mean, That's I can't not that swing crazy. That. Yeah. It's not that crazy. It's a, I mean, $100 a day, you know, 12 days, 12 grand, things like that. Um, pretty affordable. Other great deals, depending on how long you want to stay, where you want to go, how far up the river you need to be, where in time you want to land, that kind of situation. Um, you know, how primal do you need to get on this tour? I don't know. That's up to you. But there's some like beautiful things it's all here for you. I don't know what you need, what else you need to know, folks. But like, uh, maybe do we have show notes? You could post this in the show notes. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is uh, free vacations to Vietnam uh, for sponsors as well. If you're listening, 
Yeah, Mike, you said $1,000 was a lot to spend on a vacation, but it wouldn't be if we were sponsored. So I agree with you. We are open to cannoli sponsorships. We are open to pizza sponsorships, pasta sponsorships. But you've said it before with the trip to Sicily. You're right. We are open to vacation sponsorships. I, Yeah, this is such an opportunity for a potential travel agent out there or a representative of a country Right? To promote tourism in their country? We can be ambassadors. You know? Like, maybe if the government wants to get involved, I don't know. But do they have, like, Apocalypse Now tours in Vietnam? (laughs) Like, can we do that? Can you send us there? We will review your tour. You know? And do all that. Link it to the film. I know we both know it was shot in the Philippines. So I do wonder... Because, like, I doubt in Vietnam, considering, like, they actually lived through that war, that they would have an Apocalypse Now tour. Because, like, newsflash, we lost, and it is a communist country. And no, they, yeah, uh-huh. They probably, don't want, they probably don't want to. I'm just kind of joking. But, no, no, no. Uh-huh. I, I know you're joking. <laughs> but I'm thinking, though, the Philippines has to have movie tours, right? Because they shot a lot of Vietnam yeah. movies in the Philipp- Philippines. Platoon was shot in the Philippines as well, you know? Dude, it, it seems like we could go shoot a movie in the Philippines if we want to. I mean, just because, you know, like on your other show, High School Slumber Party, we talked a lot about Roger Corman and like he shot a ton of stuff in the Philippines around this time too. If you listen to sort of documentaries, not documentaries, but um, audio commentaries on sort on those like women in prison films with Pam Greer. Oh, yeah, yeah, about- yeah. They'll talk about like renting the helicopters from the government and being like Coppola had the helicopters that week. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. If you out there want to provide us with the funds to perhaps bribe the president of the Philippines so that we could have access to helicopters, we're open to that kind of sponsorship as well. Here, here. This this corner is I don't know what's happened to this. every every few episodes. This this segment goes off the rails. (laughs) Well, I'll get it back on the rails, Mike, because, you know. I've been contributing to this segment as well for the last number of episodes. I've been going mm-hmm. to the Academy Museum store. People have asked me, Brian, are they your sponsor? No, I just really enjoy this website. Unfortunately, I have to say, and as we cover Apocalypse Now in all its versions, I think we'll discover this. While The Godfather has blown up in merch, like never before, like not when the movie was released, not in the 90s, not ever have there ever been as much Godfather merchandise? Yeah. Apocalypse Now? Not the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm looking now. Are there Funko Pops? Because, like, there are, I think. <laughs> there might be Funkos, but, but save it for another episode, Mike. On the Academy store, I thought I would find more Apocalypse Now stuff there. There is not a single yeah. Apocalypse Now piece of merchandise. Well, and you know there are layers and layers of Godfather merchandise. It's strange, right? That, I mean, it is strange. Like, I mean, I don't know. Apocalypse Now isn't about, like, family, right? Even though The Godfather is violent and brutal, it's still at its core about, like, family and that kind of thing. And, like, there's things that are more relatable. And I think that's why it's kind of more universal. And Apocalypse Now, you know, like... Vietnam was so such a controversy, right? Like people either don't want to revisit it, live through it, or like misunderstand it, or like us, like are studying it through film. So like I'm sure we have a completely warped view of it. Like I can understand why it's not as marketable to that side of things, right? Like um, I mean, but 
but it still doesn't explain why they don't like have like a really nice poster or like something like that, right? Or like a signed script at least. I was I almost went with the signed replica script I saw on eBay for twenty three dollars, but I hey, thought maybe they'd have it at the store. You have plenty of episodes for other gifts because we're going to talk a lot of apocalypse now on this podcast. So, Mike, this is what I did. The next best thing from the Academy Store. I just uh, I just sent you the link. Oh, look at this! It's a nice book. Marlon Brando, Anatomy of an Actor. Uh, the author is Florence Columbani. Uh, looks looks like a good book. He's such an interesting person. We see a lot of interesting stuff about him in this doc. There's a little behind-the-scenes stuff about him, too. We know he's such a controversial and important character in Apocalypse Now. And, you know, he's someone I've always wanted to know a little bit more about. And I think America uh, sort of agrees with me, right? Like, he's an enigma. He's one of the greatest actors yeah. in the history of acting, but he's also this mysterious character. Ooh, you almost slipped into a brand. He's like this mysterious character. He 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 entered like you know my soul and was just like about to to speak <laughs> to you, Mike, in like a séance sort of form. I do like this though. The three films that they list here are Streetcar Named Desire, Godfather, and Apocalypse Now, and two out of three as mythic performances. That's a great way to put it because. Almost every performance I know him from, maybe not The Freshman, which we'll cover here, which I, I by the way, I like The <laughs> awesome. Freshman, but I wouldn't call it a mythical performance. He's just doing a character no. he did previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, most of the Brando I know are mythical performances. He sort of like mm-hmm. feels like he's not human in a sense. He feels like he's more actor than human. Yeah, I'm feeling all the same things that you're saying too. It's so hard to kind of put into words the meaning of it but like he does seem very larger than life you know um even though i from what i understand like he's a person just like the rest of us and that's oh, yeah. why maybe you know <laughs> they're like oh he was temperamental and he wanted this and that but like don't we all aren't we all like we all have our ways so i understand he may have been considered difficult or whatever but like there's there's no denying that like he was extremely private right and only talked when he wanted to. And he seemed like the kind of guy that only let you know what he wanted you to know about him. And like, I don't know. That's very interesting. Like very few celebrities ever had that type of control over their image. And, uh, and, and he created this very mysterious uh, image for himself that lasted like his entire career. And, and you reminded me of something. So quick little segue. I just want to make it clear that I think you and I, I, I know you and I are on the same page, but I think in 2023, people confuse what we're doing now, talking about Marlon Brando, with glorifying him or even worshipping him. I don't think either of us worship him or are going to come on this podcast and swear he's an amazing person. I legitimately don't know. I've heard some bad things. Mm -hmm. I've heard some good things, right? Like, just because we're talking about his talent... You know, that doesn't mean that we're like okaying everything he does and okaying the way he might have treated people, right? And I think it's the, sh- the same with this show, Uncle Francis Wine Cellar. Like, we talk about Francis a lot. We obviously love the movies. We don't know Francis personally, but the film we're going to talk about today, I think it's the closest to an honest portrayal of who Francis was in a certain moment of time. And it's not yeah. all good. Like I'll be honest with you, it's not all good. Yeah, no, no. I, I, there's, I mean, 
there's an argument to be made that there's nothing good going on here. <laughs> you know, like, was it worth it? Uh, if this is what it was worth, uh, if this is what it costs. But like, to their point, like, uh, as far as sort of realism, you know, he didn't even know he was being recorded for a lot of this stuff. Like his wife was doing it secretly, uh, sort of for her own archives and and that's how you really know when someone's being genuine right when they don't even know that they're on so like i I found that very fascinating and he just doesn't seem like the guy that does that kind of like like of course you know he's going to be a certain way like at his best as much as possible like we all like to be uh especially if he's in front of the camera so much but like here this was kind of a rough watch because here you you genuinely see like a person disintegrating you know and so like also trying to make one of the greatest movies of all time like it is it's just fascinating it's hard to watch but it's very fascinating it's fascinating we'll get into it after our obligatory other things we have to discuss oh i almost forgot Got getting ahead of myself no 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 mike you're not so much getting your head yourself you're just passionate i'm passionate as well and to me the sum of this entire episode today is like Imagine yourself, Mike, and somebody was filming you at what you felt were like your lowest moments. And, mm-hmm. and imagine people saw that. Like, that's tough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I don't want anyone seeing my lowest moments out there and, and and making it art. <laughs> you know, this is art in itself as well, this documentary. So I, to- I totally, totally get where you're coming from. It feels like we've moved into Apocalypse Now stuff. And to talk about The Godfather feels almost perverse. Then let's not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but, no, but we have to, Mike, because I'm in I know, I know. I know. It's part of the show. It's part of the show. Mike Appella, are you there? Oh, oh, oh. Of course he's here. Well, I've got to get a harmonica to do, like, the key. Yeah, yeah, the... like... <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, that's right. I still haven't written the other lyrics to it, too, but we'll do the... Uh... I should add the snap... But that's bad on a podcast, so I'll just, <laughs> just do the vocals. Where in the world is the Godfather streaming? Okay, Mike, so you almost spoiled it. Um, I really was not going to mention this segment today. Wow. I was going to just be like, we don't need to talk about it. It just feels weird to talk the Godfather. And then I'm like, let me just make sure it's not on Peacock. <laughs> or, or let me just make sure that it's on Peacock. Boom, Google it. It's back to Paramount Plus. We have our first change no in months, Mike. Our- uh, welcome home. Welcome home. I'm coming home. Coming <laughs> home. Yeah. Yeah, so... Awesome. It, excellent, excellent. The Fun King job. has returned. I don't know what the Peacock deal was, but it is once again on Paramount Plus. Where it should be. Where it should be. Yeah, it's rightful home now. Yeah, the network. Exactly. Or the studio, I should say. <sighs> well... Home turf. Well, speaking of studios, Mike. Uh-oh. Is it time for Megalopolis news? But before Megalopolis news, let's just squeeze this in here. I okay, mean, let this me is change the... the dial. It's not Godfather related. It's not Coppola related, but it's related because we've been talking about this again for months now. Uh, the streaming services and, and what they'd be called because we were so excited that CBS All Access turned into Paramount+. Plus. And, of course, there were rumors that HBO Max was going to turn into WB Plus or WB something Uh, or or Warner. And you were excited about that. That was your suggestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there were rumors of the name change. And I'm like, look, you got to hit it with the home brand, right? Like, you just, you know, bring it all the way back. Like, 
Warner Brothers. Like, no one's not going to recognize that. Like, it's so burned into everybody's brain. So I was very excited that that was, there was like a list that got released of like possible name changes. And that was on the list that it was going to be like the WB app. Unfortunately, (laughs) HBO Max, I think May 24th or something like that, will be switching just to Max. That's the name. Max. Max. That makes me think of Cinemax. Now I'm thinking of that. Now I'm not even thinking of HBO anymore. I'm thinking of like the lesser HBO. Yeah, the inferior channel, right? Yeah, like the softcore network. Max was (laughs) like, remember when it was just cable? And if you subscribe to HBO and Cinemax, you got like five HBO channels and like three Uh or four Cinemax channels. Max feels like the third Cinemax channel, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's a good call too, right? Or like the fifth HBO you get. You get like HBO Family, HBO... Latino, you know? know? Yeah, (laughs) HBO Max. Uh, It's so weird. Yeah, I mean, they I sent you the the link and I was like, talk about dropping the ball, right? It, It was right in front of your face. Paramount already beat you to the punch. Like, do it. They went the opposite of, like, the grandeur of old Hollywood studios, and they bounced it back to yeah. minimalism. Ironically, it's called Max, but it's a minimalist name, right? So It's so lame, because they're like, look how hip and cool. And it's like, it's not hip and cool to be hip and cool anymore, even, you know? Even when it was, like, no one was really buying it, because the marketing just sucked. Everything was just, like, compounded into, like, one synergy word, and it's just... Now it's just Max, and now I'm even more confused, you know? It's like, ooh, the new Batman series Penguin coming soon on Max. Yeah. Okay, what, where do I watch it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they do well, because I do like a lot of stuff on there. I don't want it to disappear mm-hmm. from the ether. So we were rooting Agreed. for you guys. So Max, you know, wasn't our choice. Oh, but... dude. It's funny you say, like, we don't want it to disappear from the ether when they're, like, disappearing their own content from the ether by themselves. Everybody's doing so, that, though. Unfortunately, everybody's uh, doing that. And, folks, let's just say, like, coming from – and, Brian, I mean, this is this might even be a little before your time. But, like, you know, if you missed a show or an episode, you were screwed. Like, that no, was it. Like, you know, it was even before DVDs and, and all those kinds of box sets and stuff. So, like, it feels like we're going backwards when we're trying to go forwards, but interesting time. It's weird. Sometimes scarcity does create demand, right? So again, I'm not a TV exec. I don't know the answer to these things, but I'm not too young for that. Don't worry, Mike. Like syndication Mm -hmm. was a big deal for me. You know, the the sitcoms they would show at at 10 or 11 o'clock. That was the only way you could catch up on TV shows, even that were on the air now. So yeah, I remember, uh, Taping baseball games for my dad and stuff. That's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. And then the infamous Disney Vault. Remember that? They would release like a tape for for a little bit. Finally opening the vault, (laughs) kiss our feet, and bow down before the fucking vault. Oh my God. And they're like, you you gotta buy it. it. You gotta buy it before it goes back in the vault forever. And I was like, VHS, (laughs) Cinderella in, you know, full screen. It's like, oh, thank you, Disney. Everything is cyclical. Everything has already happened before. Um, I was watching that. What is this? Battlestar Galactica? (laughs) (laughs) It's all been, so we've all been to here before. I was watching that uh, Mr. Rogers documentary that came out a couple years ago. So good. So good. Would you be my neighbor? It's a rewatch. So I've, little side note, little uh, about me. You know, I've been trying to get in shape. So uh, I've been on the exercise bike and I don't like 
you know, I need to not focus on what I'm doing to work out because I hate working out, you know? So the thing that has made me, I guess, work out for longer is watching documentaries because I want, right. I want to pay attention, right? Like, it can't be like a movie because yeah. I could zone out. Like, I don't zone out of documentaries for whatever reason. So regardless, I'm watching the Mr. Rogers doc. And it's like, it shows like the episodes, his first week was about mm-hmm. a king, King Friday, right? And he decides that the people coming from the other kingdom are changing things and making things in the kingdom different so he decides to build a wall and there's a whole war and it's like i know why they put that on the documentary just to be like things change but things stay the same right so yep yep my roundabout way of saying is like even though things are streaming now the vault method is back yeah, yeah. And you know what else? There are, there are also good things happening, you know, like companies discovering long lost films and releasing films that haven't been reissued in forever or ever since their theatrical release. So, you know, you find some good stuff that way, too. And uh, yeah, it all comes out even in the end, I suppose. But uh, as long as I can watch The Godfather, I don't care. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I didn't expect to talk where The Godfather is streaming today. I did expect to talk some Megalopolis news, but Mike, I searched long and hard. No Megalopolis mm. news. Things have wow. gone silent, so hopefully they're Uh-oh. busy editing. But huh. is no news good news? I don't know if that's the case with Coppola, but we'll see. Well, maybe he's letting it die down a little bit, and uh, you know, people think of some other stuff, and then you know, before we know it, wham, here comes a trailer. Right? Oh, like I That would be so. amazing. I yeah, hope so. Fantastic. One news article, and it was Coppola-related, that I want to talk about. And Coppola news. Are you familiar with the filmmaker Paul Schrader? Oh, most definitely. Writer and director, yeah. I'd heard the name, and I didn't know what he really did. Can you remind me like, why he's so renowned and famous? I wrote the wrote Taxi Driver. Oh, that's, that's what right. I originally. That's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, on an American Gigolo, uh, he also directed that movie, The Canyons, with um, what was it, Lindsay Lohan? Oh, uh, like really? He's done, he, like, yeah, like he's done a lot of like okay stuff. He did a Nick Cage movie, uh, Dying of the Light. That was a good Cage movie. Uh, so um, I know him primarily as a as a writer, as a great writer. He did an Exorcist film, and he's a pretty good director as well. But yeah, I'm I'm familiar with him. Check out his his filmography; it's pretty dense. So he would not be a fan of Uncle Francis's wine cellar. I'll I'll tell you that much. So I'm reading this article from IndieWire, and he basically says to paraphrase: filmmakers should not revisit their work. And he's he's very adamant about this. He actually refers to Apocalypse Now and, and mm. says. Redux is worse than it was before. I don't know if he's implying that Apocalypse Now was bad originally and Redux made it worse. That's what it sounds like. Um, he, you know, kind of rips into okay. Terrence Malick as well. Um, but wow. basically, he, he says it's a slippery slope and it's just not something that he thinks filmmakers should do. Uh, His exact quote is, I think it's a very slippery slope. Everything changes and there's nothing you can do about it. 
Well, I'll just say this is that he's a hypocrite because he made a Nick Cage, he made two Cage movies, but he made one with Cage and Anton Yelchin called Dying of the Light, where Cage is an aging spy and he goes over to Russia to perform one last mission or whatever. And Schrader was like, the film was taken away from me. The studio did what it wanted to with it. Like, I'm not happy with the movie. In 2017, what did he do? He revisited the movie. Really? He cut the work print into a rough film, and then he released it under a new title called Dark. And he's like, this is my original vision for my movie. So he could kind of fuck himself, right? <laughs> Wow. I didn't realize that. Well, thank you, Mike, for enlightening. As soon as you said what that was about, like, brain was on fire. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, another quote he says, I've never been drawn to the big toys like George, meaning Lucas, and Francis and Marty. And once you get hooked on the big toys, then the budgets go way sky high. By big toys, I mean crowd scenes, a period wardrobe, and more explosions. Sorry, guy. Okay, but, but he'll still use people for their spectacle like Lindsay Lohan right like he's making a movie with her because it's her like and she you know gets naked and has sex in the movie and everything and I think that's the (laughs) one with the porn there's like a porn star in that too Um, anyway also same with like casting Cage in your film twice it's like you know that's that's more of a draw than not having Cage in your movie right it's like who you cast as to act in it too that could be considered going big as well so i don't know this guy's weird though (laughs) (laughs) well that's really the only coppola news that i feel worth talking about someone else on some popular site wrote an article while uh saying why tom hagan should have been the real godfather and i'm like i'm not even reading that like what that's not even <laughs> so let's why talk- fredo should have been the real godfather <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. so let's talk hearts of darkness a filmmaker's apocalypse 1991 have you read heart of darkness by joseph conrad you want to know something brian i i, I tried like twice three times maybe it's just it uh, if not my cup of tea maybe i don't know um a little maybe advanced at the time that i tried to read it which was like around high school early college you know i've read a lot since trying to read it so i should we should revisit it though and maybe i should see if i could get through it this time but uh yeah it is a very dense and difficult book i read it and i'm using air quotes in college but I think I was more skimming and listening to the professor talk about it, you know, at the end okay. of every class. Um, I'd like to really read it, but it is a dense book. Anyone who I know who has read it has been like, this is not the easiest read. It doesn't seem all that long either, you know, and, and it's funny because at the time there was a period where I was like devouring books at the level of like, you know, the lottery pod, right? Like Joey and, and, uh, and Bob's uh, I was going to say he doesn't say his name publicly anymore, so you didn't. Who, Joey? No, the other one. He has, a, he has like an alter ego. I said there. it I said it backwards. I said it Bob backwards. Oh, true, true. You did say it backwards. <laughs> so you don't Ooh. know who I'm talking about. Anyway, anyway, there was a time where I was like eating books like that, right? And I remember trying to read Lovecraft around the same time and being like, it's just too like purple. Like I just can't. 
get through these sentences sometimes. It's like, what is he describing? Like, just, you know, and I kind of felt the same when I was reading Conrad, where I was just like, ah, he's being like almost over descriptive or like, I don't have like the level to sort of conjure in my mind what he's trying to describe properly. I don't know if he's up to it, but maybe we need someone like the artist formerly known as Bob of Lottery Pod to come on the pod when we do a book Mm. as dense as Conrad and be like, you know, our professor, if you will, because... Yeah, break it down. Well, you know, maybe we'll ask him about that. But I was I was, was curious if you had read it. Obviously, the title of this documentary comes from Heart of Darkness. Apocalypse Now is an adaptation, a loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Oh, question. Are there any other films that might be considered... Because oh, I, I kind of feel like there that there have been movies. Is it just like any movie where a guy goes off to like take someone out <laughs> that used to be an ally there was like a james bond movie where he was sent after an evil double o agent it was like golden eye maybe i don't know if they're all influenced by conrad but yeah i mean there's schwarzenegger movies like this there's stallone movies like this right so it, it <laughs> i get what you're saying heart of darkness adaptation now i need to look this up only because it seems like one of those types of stories that is adaptable in many media like you could do this in space you could do this in medieval times like you know what i mean like it's like that kind of type of work that transcends you know and and can be updated and, and adapted and changed but still maintain the essence of it yeah no for sure because there's like a universality of yeah the story um, I don't know. I'll have to do some more research when it comes to that. Apparently in 1958, there was a CBS television um, anthology based on Heart of Darkness. And guess who played Kurtz? Huh. Charlie Sheen. This is going to blow your mind. This is 1958. Guess who played Kurtz? 1950. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> 1958. 50s. Oh, dude. And they probably cast someone like thin and skinny and all that kind of stuff, like in the book. Who? Who did it? Boris Karloff plays Kurt. Whoa, that's perfect. From what I understand in the book, that would be perfect. I'm not done blowing your mind, Mike. There's a character called Marlowe, who I believe is the Martin Sheen character named differently. Guess who plays that in the 1958 television adaptation? Uh, let's see. Oh, what's his name? Um, Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> Roddy McDowell. <gasps> My fucking boy, what the <laughs> hell? That's my man. Oh my god, we have to watch this for something. We have to we can watch, watch it for this. We have I to mean, watch this. Brian, while you're editing, write it down because Roddy McDowell and Boris Karloff together. Dude, this is like my dream. <laughs> oh my god, my mind. I don't know if I can go on tonight, Brian. I told you I'd blow you I mean, mind. I told you. This is like not only monsters that made us, but like the several unstarted Roddy McDowell podcast ideas that I have, you know? <laughs> And of course, oh um, as a, as alluded to and shown in, or used, I should say, in the documentary, Orson Welles is a famous radio adaptation of it, um, which is again used as a framing device here. So the story of Hearts of Darkness, specifically, yes. is yes. Eleanor Coppola, Francis's wife, and this makes her another Coppola filmmaker by, by making this work. Yeah, is, which, yeah. Which is amazing. The tree continues to expand here on the podcast. Um, she was tasked by Francis to do a behind-the-scenes documentary, as Francis, again, as he said, with the Rain People, has done for almost all his movies here or there. Uh, I don't know if he does it for his own personal sake or for future DVD sales, but 
she even says at the beginning, like, I don't know if why he's making me do this. Not in like that kind of way, but like it, it might be just to keep me busy, right? Mm-hmm. But she's great. So she shot all this uh, behind the scenes footage. She also admits that she shot Francis at times when he didn't realize that she was uh, shooting him or recording him. Right. Um, she shot things that he knew, but he thought it was like not for the behind the scenes documentary, more of her personal you know, his own personal collection, right? So she had this trove, and I guess Zoetrope, by default, had this trove of just behind-the-scenes stuff for Apocalypse Now. Apparently, they contacted two gentlemen, or I don't know, Safax Bar and George Hickenlooper, and she basically gave them the footage and said, I have a lot of great stuff here. Uh, Let's try to figure out, you know, how to make it into a doc for the 90s, if you will. Yeah. So they got a lot of actors to return to do interviews. They, they threw in the Orson Welles thing. At one point, they considered um, having a different narrator, not Eleanor Coppola, which I think would have been a mistake. I think Coppola's Definitely. narrator is great. And um, yeah, it ended up doing really well. It ca- kind of brought the film back to the forefront, as you were mentioning, Mike, when things would leave the theater. And yeah, maybe they had a VHS copy, but they wouldn't really be in the ether like they are today when something streams, right? So this really brought Apocalypse Now to America and the world's eyes once again. Mm-hmm. It debuted at Cannes. Nice. But to most Americans who saw it on the first screening, if you will, or the first run, it was on Showtime, uh, which is oh. another network, <laughs> which is a Paramount network. At least now. I don't know if it was then. I think it was then. Did you know one choice for Paramount Plus was just time? (laughs) Nice. Nice. So because of that, though, it's considered a TV movie in a lot of places. And it won two Emmys. But actually, Eleanor Coppola, being one of the directors, won an Emmy for this. So to be specific, it won uh, Outstanding Individual Achievement in an Informational Program for Directing. Um, to okay. Hickenlooper, Barr, and Coppola, and it won for editing, but the category technically is Outstanding Individual Achievement, Informational Programming, Picture Editing. So, mm. I mean, it is well edited, obviously. So this is an Emmy Award-winning yeah. film we're talking about here. Cool. going to spit some other facts at you quickly. Francis disagreed with his portrayal. He did not like the final cut. Okay. It was not released on DVD until 2007 because he re- yes he refused to to you know sign off on it. And Mike, the Apocalypse Now Blu-ray that was released in 2010, which I don't think I have, has a version of this documentary on it with Francis commentary, where Francis refers to it as. Watch Francis suffer. So even this <laughs> has an alternate version, if you will, that we need to watch. Oh, wow. Mine doesn't have the audio commentary. I never realized that. Wow, that's so funny. This has two cuts. So I actually didn't know. I thought this came out in 2007. Like I hadn't heard about this up until that point, you know? I mean, how would I know? Like it's kind of been out of rotation, right? Like he took it out of print or whatever. This also has, Brian, bonus extra, Coda, 30 years later. A brand new documentary seen here for the first time as Eleanor rejoins her husband as he directs his first new feature film in 10 years, Youth Without Youth. (laughs) 
We ha- we have to cover that at one point. Brian put that in the notes. But look how about how like Coda's been on his mind. He likes Coda the word. this. He Coda Godfather, you know, loves it. He likes the word. Yeah, but this as far as documentaries go, this is incredible. I mean, considering what you want most out of your subject is access and to be married to your subject and to be there with him every step of the way and like basically working on the same project as him and all that and like having the permission like that's just you know a dream come true 100 percent, mike and i think while doing the research i learned something that i guess i wasn't aware of but this was the first or one of the first behind the scenes film documentaries that actually like achieved mainstream success because again filmmaker that's not a mainstream picture right like coppola released it and it's also for the rain people so not a lot of people are watching that one but you get uh what's the one lost in la mancha right or the the superman one you guys covered for cage you get a whole string of these much that would come out yeah much later but this is like the first of that generation of them which 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 i think is pretty cool there's a vhs version of this from 92 and a laserdisc version from 92 um but Again, he would not sign off on the DVD. The other note I had, interesting. while a lot of the actors did come back, most I would say, to chat about this, Marlon Brando refused because he claimed that Coppola owed him $2 million for the <laughs> extra time spent filming, which is part, part of oh the movie, my right? God. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's amazing. Ah, I love it. You know, but like just to, just to briefly touch on the whole sort of behind the scenes thing like i feel like this even in 91 like there had been things like burden of dreams have you ever seen that herzog making Fitzcarraldo? Yeah, yeah yeah there's been stuff like that but that's like herzog and he was also so like you know kind of in an exclusive category he was your he was a foreign director he was making documentaries and these crazy movies movies and then he would make behind the scenes movies about his own movies and how crazy <laughs> his actors are and stuff so like it was sort of off in its own world for a long time but in 1991 for a documentary about a movie to sort of reach any kind of acclaim has to be monumental uh, because we were getting at that time a lot of behind the scene access to every movie coming out, like with behind the scene specials on HBO with entertainment tonight. Like it was sort of the age where we started pulling back the curtain and Hollywood was like, here's how it's done. Here's what's happening when we're making our movies, you know? And it was all sort of um, kayfabe and like, absolutely. That's what I was going to say, Mike people magazine style, right? Yes. So when this drops and it's like, no, this was like, there's no sugarcoating this, right? Like this is if you strip it all away and what you're left with. I think it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Not like, I don't want to say exploitation, but like, because that sort of has more of like a negative vibe to it. But like, there's like this thing where it's just like, you can't not look at it. It's not quite a train wreck, but there's just something so honest about it that it's so compelling. That's it. It's just so compelling to keep watching. You know, you really start to sort of identify with this guy as just a guy trying to do a job, not a man making a movie at one point. And there's three levels of Francis, which I think makes this a compelling documentary, right? There's the Francis behind the scenes when he doesn't know he's being filmed. There's Francis, the director who 
is trying to keep it together. He's clearly falling apart, but he still needs to be a leader, kind of. And then there's 1991 Francis talking about the movie. So while a lot of these behind-the-scenes documentaries, like the people know the camera's on, so while it's, to what you're saying, behind the scenes, they still know that it's there. They're still not going to ream out an actor on the behind right, the scenes right. footage, right? <laughs> exactly. So the layers here are just so sensational and so amazing. And it starts with this whole, like, he's kind of talking about the film. He's like, my film is not a movie. My film is not about Vietnam. Um, I'm just paraphrasing, and I just wrote a couple right, things right. down. Like, like, no, I, I know where you're going with well, this. Like, yep. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had, we had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little, we went insane. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, having tried to make movies, and you, you know, back me up on this, like, it, it can get to a point some nights or some days or even for a week or so where you're like, I'm not making this movie. This movie is, like, taking control of me. Like, you know, this movie is, like, taking control, like, of every facet of my life. What started out as something I'm doing with my spare time is now, like, I'm calling in, like, late to work, you know, so I could do something or whatever, right? And so I kind of, he gives that that sort of line later, too, where he's like, you know, this thing is all-consuming. This is, like, we are not making a movie. This is life. Like this is just reality now. And reality is uh, surreal. It's, you know, like we are going nuts, but uh, you know, that is art. I guess that's what he's getting at. Right. Is like at some point it transcended from like, we're just making a movie to like, I'm trying to show you something more than a movie and give you an experience. And by doing that, like you have to give more of yourself over at some point as well. And so the cost is like losing something inside of yourself, whether it be like your sanity or your soul for a minute or two. Uh, and ho- hopefully you get results like he did. I mean, I think it's a great, brilliant movie, oh, I love this you know, movie, but yeah. like I just wish no one had to suffer as much as they did to make it. This is the other side of the Zoetrope coin. And they do allude to this towards the end of the film, right? Like he finances it himself for a couple reasons and he admits that he's a very wealthy man at this point because of the godfather but he does not want studio control we talked about this on the zoetrope documentary this was originally um one of the original zoetrope films it john milius wrote it george lucas was gonna george lucas was gonna direct it of course george lucas gets a little bit busy around this time so so he's not really up for it anymore Francis is like, I'll direct it. And he's super excited about it. But he wants full control. Something he hasn't had to this scale ever. And to have it, you got to spend your own money. You got to mortgage the farm, quite literally. And while the idea of Zoetrope is utopian and on left wing almost. And, and, you know, socialist or communist even, like, in a way. yeah cult (laughs) this is like what the naysayers would say it would actually turn into if you are someone who doesn't believe in those sort of utopian ideas you would say that doesn't exist it'll turn to chaos right and not that this turns into complete chaos because it got made but it almost does in a sense I am, and I know you agree with me, Mike, like, we like the Zoetrope model more than we like the big studio model. Yeah, I mean, it's like the uh, A24, right? Like, that's the 
career, the success I feel like Zoetrope was trying to go for. He says at one point, people ask me if I, I should quit. How can I quit? I'd be quitting on myself. When the buck stops with you and you're the director and you're essentially the writer at this point and it's all on top of you, how could that not be overwhelming? Plus you're in a foreign land and you're having to manage all these actors, half of them who are high on stuff more than weed. I'm not just saying high in that way, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, one of them in his 30s, okay, which you would think would be your the prime of your life, is going to have a heart attack? <laughs> after after you just replaced an actor with this guy? Like, you know? <laughs> this is This is the argument for you can't do everything on your own, that you do need theoretically yeah. some backing right i don't have the answer i'm not in hollywood but if if someone wants to poke holes in the zoetrope model they could well, except that this was a success you, <laughs> you know what i mean you know what you know what'd be interesting is like okay so here's this is funny because like for all intent and purposes uh you know george and george lucas and the prequels were a success but like you know from a fan point at least mine at the time was a little disappointed kind of coming around but you go and you look at those documentaries that are on those dvds and his producer rich mccullum is like that's the it's like he relies on him he's like you know george is like i'm the creative you go and make everything else happen be my producer francis won't let anybody do anything for him at this stage you know he's the creative and the executive and he's saying I need to go sign off on the helicopters and the boats and the actors instead of letting someone else be in charge of all that stuff. I think that's where it sort of became an issue. You know, even George Lucas was like, I can't direct episodes uh, five and six. Like, let me go pick directors so I could focus on like what the artistic side of things, you know, otherwise he probably would have lost his mind at some point as well, trying to like direct an Ewok while designing a Rancor. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Francis is so brave. But so crazy as well for doing this, right? Because how many filmmakers, Mike, have you seen say, including Francis, to be fair, the film didn't turn out the way I wanted to because of the studio. Yeah. Francis had enough money to literally put his money where his mouth is and say, well, what's going to happen if I make a big, huge budget production without the aid of them? And he finds out, you know, he, he, he finds out. And I love the vulnerability. I love the behind the scene, behind the scenes when he's like, this movie's terrible. It's going to get an F. This is a $20 million, he didn't say boondoggle, but failure, I think he says, right? <laughs> he's out there and he has to act confident among the actors and he has to look like he has a plan. But when he's alone with his wife, the, like the woman he loves most and his family, by the way, we get a lot of Sophia. We get a lot of the other kids. Unfortunately, uh, one, I forgot. Um, I, I shouldn't forget his name, but I know his one son passed away uh, early yeah, and, and he's in the film. Tragic. He's in the film a lot as well, but he has, his, he has his closest people around him and only among them. Can he be honest? And, like, you know, we're recording on a Sunday night, and, you know, you've heard, you've heard, Mike, I'm sure, the Sunday scaries, right? You think about your work week, and you're like, you get that anxiety. Imagine the level that he was feeling it, right? Like, he, he's not your, your Monday through Friday office worker. He's in the jungle with all these people depending on him, and he's got to go out and put a brave face. It's wild, too, because he does. 
Like he is somehow able to go out there and be the ringleader. And you see people like Martin Sheen and, and Freddie Forrest and they're like, man, thank God, like I'm looking up to Francis, you know, like Francis, at least like Francis knows what's going on. And then you see Francis go like, OK, now you get out of the boat and the tiger's going to come. And I know and then the camera's going to go like this and that's the shot. And don't move until I say action and all. And then behind the scenes, like Francis is like, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. Like, I, I want to shoot myself every minute of the day. I think every decision is wrong. And in the meantime, his actors are like, Francis is brilliant, you know? Uh, <laughs> like, Dennis Hopper is like, I don't even know what I'm doing, man. And like, I, I, I'm screwing up, but Francis thinks it's good. So like, I'm just doing, you know, there's that great moment between them when Francis, when, when Hopper's like, I don't know this character. And Francis is like, it's you. Like, do it how you would be, you know? Like, I love that kind of direction, you know? And I feel like, He's like, I hired you to do the role because I knew you'd basically he's like, I knew you'd show up too fucked up to do this. <laughs> and that's character. Like, oh, he's a guy who's too fucked up to be here right now. <laughs> uh, so, like, it's so interesting to see. Uh, it's, it's like a psych sociology experiment or something like they should show this in, you know, uh, psychiatry class or whatever that is like when you're training to help people, because like. Yeah, you, you see, you know, the quote unquote brave face that people have to do to put on to go to work and then they come home and they break down. And it's like, wow, it's so revealing because like, you know, it just shows like he's like a guy. He's like a normal guy. Absolutely, Mike. Like I even took that from this. I was even like, you know, anyone who's ever suffered from imposter syndrome. Yeah. The great Francis Ford Coppola suffers from imposter syndrome. He has already directed two Godfather movies and won multiple Academy Awards, as we covered in a previous episode. And yet, he's having a crisis of confidence, a crisis of who he is during the entire production. But you're right. He puts on the brave face and he's the leader they need there. And again, I, I said it earlier, not everything he says and does I think is great and I think reflects well on him, but I was impressed by, by that part of it. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot of balls to just put it all out there as much as this and let the public decide, you know, I feel like at this point watching this documentary, there's enough to sort of conclude about this time period about, you know, who he was, how he is. And it's always, it's also great to have sort of future Francis there, looking back on himself being like, I'm not like that anymore, or I'm still like this or whatever. Or, yeah. It's just wild. And and I guess like the one person that was just like such a wrench in the whole project was Brando, you know, like, I just feel like if Brando wasn't, wasn't sort of pulling his shit, like Francis wouldn't have had that as much anxiety about everything going on because that was such a major part of it was like, is Brando even going to show up? And like, can I afford him? And how much is he going to do? And is he going to listen to me? He's supposed to be really thin and he's overweight. And like, we're going to have to alter so much. Uh, and then even then he does it. Like he gets a performance out of him that is worthy. And they, they come to some kind of arrangement to make the movie happen. And, you know, he gets to the finish line somehow. I think we'll talk about this more in Apocalypse Now. But what I always thought that worked for the film was... Sometimes this lack of cohesion makes total sense because of where it is and what it's about, right? Like, he's so hung up on that ending, but I almost don't care what the ending is 
at that point because there's just the journey we've it's like so corny but the journey we've gone through is all i need i hear that and you and you know there's movies that intentionally set out to do that and fail uh, and that's why it sounds corny when you say things like that. But this is a movie that didn't try to do that and sort of fell into that trope. Uh, and I agree. I think it's successful. And I think, Francis, if you kind of realized it's more about the journey than the destination, because when you get there, that you've changed, you know, <laughs> maybe it would have all been a lot different. Right. And maybe we wouldn't have gotten a masterpiece. Maybe it would have failed if he knew exactly what he wanted and what he was doing. And it's that sort of like ghost that he kept chasing that finally enabled him to, you know, get it the way he was a- he was able to live with. And, and I have some bullet points I want to hit, but just jumping off of that. Um, mm-hmm. So as we mentioned, this was a John Milius Oh, yeah, the great John Milius, the great insane John And I Milius. said this on the Zoetrope doc. Like, I, I could hear this man speak for hours. He's such a character, and he's got such... When I say an awesome voice, I mean, like, yes, like, oh, he's a great storyteller. But, like, his voice is so, like, yes. captivating and fun to me. He's got a great radio voice. Like, almost like he belongs with, like, Orson Welles. There's a great documentary about him, too, that yes, you should definitely yes. check out. We should check out, because it's related to the show. Brian, add Agreed. that to the notes. <laughs> no, I have seen that doc, and it is amazing. But when they originally pitched it for Zoetrope, the Vietnam War was still going on, and they yeah. wanted to shoot in Vietnam. In Vietnam. While yeah. the war was going on, which is un- insane. 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 And John Milius was I all mean, about like, that. Like, I don't know if how serious they are or if that was just an idea they came up I'm with. I'm sure it was just an idea because that would never. As an anecdote. Yeah. yeah, I doubt that they actually all wanted to actually do that, but it was probably more of like, how crazy would it be if we shot this like in the war? It would be like that scene in Full Metal Jacket where <laughs> fucking the, the guy from the news is like doing the movie He's like got the fucking film camera in the middle of the war zone and everything. He's asking all the people questions and stuff as the battle's going on. And Apocalypse Now has a scene like that too, where isn't France exactly in yes? It? And he's yes. he's like, see, what does he say? He's like, no, 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 don't look at me. Yeah, don't look at the camera. Don't yeah. look at the camera. <laughs> no, no, exactly. So, uh, and Milis is so passionate about this, but by the time Francis decides to uh, shoot it again or shoot it himself, I should say. He decides to doctor the Amelia script here or there. And some, some things for the better, right? One of the things they mentioned that I thought was great was that, like, when the screenplay was written, no one had really quite understood the impact that drugs had on the soldiers there and how what the impact they would have even on American society later, right? We see that a lot in, right. the, in the movie. If you watch Vietnam movies from that era, it's never talked about, right? movie like the green berets or things like that right like no one's fucking like smoking a joint like <laughs> in a film not that it would but you know yeah, what i mean dropping right? acid right it, it was the 60s and you needed a little time to digest what the 60s were all about and the fact that it was also in vietnam as well uh, and, and no criticism about it by the way like that's just a reality of that war and francis weaves like i'll just say like drug stuff in here Pretty effectively, yeah. right? And and I think that was missing from the Milius script. Oh, okay. That is interesting. I would have assumed that that was like maybe toned down from the Milius script, if anything. Yeah, it's got to be there. You know, I think of like Forrest Gump, right? That Vietnam sequence, like there's there's barely like a beer 
uh, I think in, in that sequence, but like, then I think of Jacob's ladder. Oh, I don't want to spoil anything, but like, you know, let's just say that like there was more than recreational drugs going on in Vietnam, Yes, that kind of stuff, right? Like there was other kinds of shit going on with our soldiers as well. So like, yeah, it's crazy. What else has kind of come to light since about uh, drug use and all that, by the way, just as it was at home. Oh, right. Yeah. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but I think it was to a lot of people. (laughs) I mean, I think for part of the war, like LSD was still legal, Uh, at least in America. Like there was a popular Dragnet episode about, you know, it wasn't until like the 60s, uh, late, late 60s, I believe that like LSD became illegal. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we mentioned Brando was difficult. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but he wanted three million dollars. For three weeks of shooting, so a million dollars a week. Francis, I forgot the timetable he said, but I think he said it was going to take three months. We know it didn't. You know it. We know. We know it yeah. took longer than that. One of the craziest things, though, that, and I knew this, but I forgot this. And unfortunately, there was no footage. But Harvey Keitel was the original. Oh, there's a little bit of footage. Wait, there's a little bit of footage. Yeah, yeah. Um, Harvey Keitel was bit. the original Willard. He was the original Willard, and. They shot a bunch of scenes with him, and Francis was like, "Ah, it's not working," and he sent him home. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real Eric Stoltz Back to the Future situation. What I loved though is that he kept all the reverse shots, or like he was like, "Until we get an actor, like we'll just shoot all the reverse, and then we'll just do like oneers on the guy, and like whoever <laughs> it is, it'll we'll just cut to him, and it'll fit perfectly." And it kind of did. And then when Martin Sheen ends up having the heart attack, like I always heard they they brought. Um, charlie sheen in to be his body double for a while but they don't mention that on the documentary so i don't know if that's true or not but Hmm, it's just wild that he had to kind of do that twice in the same movie yeah that that is really crazy but uh so he flies to i I didn't realize this he flew back to la talked to martin sheen at the airport martin sheen sort of reveals and he's revealed more since even this documentary that he was in terrible shape but he's like oh good a movie with francis it's only gonna take three months Let's do it. And mm-hmm. you can't be in terrible shape for a film like this, especially that character. He's in his 30s, but you're right. Like, he ends up, um, you know, we'll go to, he ends up having that uh, heart attack when Francis, Francis has a dream about this scene of Willard in the hotel. And he kind of, like, gets Martin Sheen to sort of do it. And Martin Sheen actually has a breakdown and you know it's that famous hotel scene and we get like the extended cut in this documentary and it's like unnerving to watch right yeah yeah because we get francis we get the b-roll of like francis directing him you know like a drunken passing out martin sheen just going like now look at yourself in the mirror. And Martin Sheen like looks at himself in the mirror and starts doing like karate moves. And he's like, what do you want to do? And he just like punches the mirror in his hands. Like that's all real, you know? So like, I, I don't know It's if this is like a method thing that they were working out or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it eventually gave Martin Sheen a break. That's crazy. Like Francis is having a breakdown every day. His actors are breaking down every day. Like, I don't know. It just seems like you would nowadays you would stop right that's what was disturbing to watch for me that's where i was like oh francis you know and not in like a cute way i was like this isn't good no and like uh you're so like yeah like what are you doing like this is not worth it 
when you're in the Serengeti and the lion eats the antelope, you let it happen because that's nature. These are human beings here, right? Right. The only, I don't want to say saving grace, is like Martin Sheen doesn't seem like he blames Francis for it. It's not like he was yes. particularly upset by it. But but he ends up, again, having a heart attack. And they have that little behind-the-scenes clip that he definitely, Francis definitely didn't think he was being re- recorded, where he's like, uh, what does he say? Like, how dare you... Uh, tell people that he had a heart attack like everyone on set is like francis doesn't oh yeah they don't francis is like doesn't believe he's having a heart attack he's in denial and let me get the exact quote because i I, again it was like chilling yeah he he doesn't want to admit it and he goes if marty dies i want to say that everything is okay until i say that marty dies and i'm like jesus (laughs) christ and i know He'll admit it. He's going insane. I know he's not in the right state right now. I know he has so much at stake. If if this is not a hit, he goes back to zero again. And he has a wife and kids that depend on him as well, right? So, like, that is eating at him. So those are the reasons. And they're not excuses. Those are the reasons. But you still can't be like that. Like, he, yeah. he's, like, putting pressure on the doctor. I think that's how you know in the end, ultimately, that he's unwell. Right. When when you can't have the sense uh, to, like, put somebody's well-being above anything else, you know, above the movie, like when you start letting people get hurt and like injure themselves or, or, you know, need medical attention and you're sort of like that's your directing method, then I think like you've gone over the edge. I mean, usually when that happens, as far as I'm aware, you know, from what I've seen and read and heard is like the person isn't aware. Like, you know, for it's very, uh, it could be that Francis isn't even aware of his behavior. For at sure. That point. And it's not an excuse either. No. Like I'm not making an excuse for him or any of that. I'm just trying to understand it and explain how I see it. But like, if he has truly lost it at that point, then that, that could be what is happening with this scene. You could be watching a man who has lost it, direct, directing a man to lose it. You know what I'm saying? Like using what he's feeling to be like, I'm going to now drive this man nuts, right? Like I'm going to direct him to be as crazy as I am or something. Yeah. Uh, so like, pro- it was probably a very dark moment. And, and again, it's weird because Martin Sheen is just sort of like recalling it like an anecdote. And he does preface it by saying like he was in a very bad place himself. And, you know, it was probably not right for him to be there either. So, you know, Sharing blame maybe is what he's doing. It is. It doesn't seem like he wants to blame Francis either for what happened. But like you know, you can make up your own mind when you watch this. And it's chilling. It's jarring. But make up your own mind for sure. You know, I have some notes that you know I, I wanted to just mention here. Oh, that's exactly why Francis financed this himself. He didn't want your notes. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no. no. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, one thing I had early on, I love seeing Francis ahead of time with the actors doing rehearsals in like a play sort of way we've discussed this how much he enjoys that theater style of acting so yeah i thought that was cool he wanted to direct dracula like that basically like it was uh like all black backgrounds and just use the costumes and make it like a stage play i still think he should direct the stage play you know for a couple months on broadway or broadway we'd have we'd have to cover it on the pod i'd love it we could go we're close Now, this is the first time I've ever thought about this, and I've watched Apocalypse Now so many times. Oh, new thoughts. The script has a character named Chief and a character named Chef. 
Chef. You know how yeah. hard that must have been to read? Not that they were reading the script a lot in this movie, but like bouncing between Brian, them. I thought that was the joke. Like the whole joke is like how when you know how kind of confused everybody was when they got to Vietnam because of the tactics that were being used against them and then then you get a guy named Chef and a guy named Chief, you know, in your boat and it's like ah <laughs> if that's the joke, fine, but could you imagine if it's notated like that in this huge ass script and reading it oh, at the, ta- at the sure. table read? It drove him. That's probably part of the reason he went nuts. Is because of just trying to get that straight the whole time. Now, another thing is, and I'm not sure if this documentary outs themselves or not. But we, as we know, Lawrence Fishburne is in this film. Larry Fishburne. Mm-hmm. He's 14. Yeah. So whatever he says, I don't hold against him because his brain isn't fully formed yet. What's crazy is I was always told, and the behind the scenes that I always said. They didn't know he was 14 until he returned home because that was not allowed. But this documentary implies that they good and well knew he was 14. You know what I mean? Yeah, they knew. They knew. <laughs> I don't think they told anybody till they got back, though. Like, they were filming it for the documentary. You know, he's sitting there saying, like, I'm 14, man. I think it was more hiding it from the trades and the people back home when, like, the... Um, child labor laws and all that kind of stuff (laughs) yeah because because that's insane and the quote he has is like oh essentially he says something along the lines of you know vietnam was great for some people you could do anything you want that's why vietnam must have been fun right like yeah yeah he kind of had this thing of like man i wish i could have gone to vietnam (laughs) which is so jarring to hear but it's great for that character right see that i wonder if he was in character because it just is such a naive thing to say that it just I can't imagine like um you know even at 14 uh, uh, someone who wanted to become an actor not and being in apocalypse now not understanding like what was really kind of going on that it, it was not a vacation it was not you know like it was just hard to hear <laughs> but then I was like well he's just a kid yeah yeah. Trying to sound cool. We mentioned the helicopters already, but I thought it was just crazy that, you know, Marcos, he makes the deal with Marcos, the Philippine, the leader of the yeah. Philippines, and they're fighting like, uh, you know, insurgents. Insurgents, and they need the helicopters. So, so, yeah, so they'll go down, fight the insurgents. Then Francis will get control of the helicopters after that from the same guys who, who are, are in a war of their own. Then they'll go back to essentially killing insurgents that that's so wild to me that sounds so loco though like that sounds like something in a book you read so like it almost sounds like a vonnegut novel where it's like i went down to this strange third world country to make my movie and got in good with the dictator and he's letting me use all of his fleet of cars but then like there's insurgents at the border at every angle but it's cheap to make a movie here. Uh, No, for sure. (laughs) How cool was it seeing the uh, Dean Tavalaris like set building here? Like the guy's a legend. One of the greatest production designers of all time. And I don't know why while watching this, I didn't think that like they had to build sets in the jungle. I was just thinking like, I don't know. Some of that stuff was there, you know? I know that just makes it even more 
unbelievable that that anything got done it's like you see francis directing and he's like up to his waist in water in the ocean in a beach and he's like there's helicopters flying everywhere and wind blowing and he's got a megaphone and he's trying to direct and all this like all this crazy shit going on and then yeah they have to build all this stuff in the jungle right they're not on sound stages like how insane all of that like they probably because what they had to build that entire french set with that and that had to be on the river there and they had to build um like all the villages and all like oh my god kurtz's yeah, compound yeah kurtz's whole compound those poor people with their heads sticking out of the floor all day long that was insane <laughs> like actual people playing the decapitated heads which I, I didn't realize that was the case uh but the fact that like during pre-production and the beginning of production a typhoon hits and they have to stop everything <laughs> yeah but did you get uh there's two things from that moment that i love it's, it's for, right before that it's brando you know, threatening to quit, and then Francis with his bravado saying, like, I can get Redford, I can get Pacino, I can get Nixon, you know, <laughs> to do this. It's like, but you know, like, Francis wants Brando. So if he could have got those people and he wanted those people, he would have gotten those people, but he chose Brando. But yep. what's her name? Eleanor is narrating, and she's like, you know, production has stopped. Francis has decided to make pasta. Did you catch that line? <laughs> I loved it. That was fantastic. It's like, <laughs> was that in the middle of like the tsunami? Yeah, or something? the typhoon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, she's like, there's water up to our ankles and Sophia is splashing around. Francis is making meatball parmesan shit. It's like, what? <laughs> and then like, he doesn't take it seriously at first, but then like half the sets get destroyed. The crew is sent home and Francis goes to Napa with the family. I'm like, oh. This is so Uncle Francis' wine cellar. Oh, most definitely. That was great. To, yeah, he already has uh, the valley going on up there. Very cool. I don't know if this was retrospective or at the time, but the support from Eleanor, not just her like great filmmaking, but a lot of wives would not have allowed their husbands or vice versa to mortgage everything for a film like this and then witness it collapsing and then be like, I'm there for you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there. That's a that's a hell of a person to be your partner, if you ask me. Um, that's dedicated. That is, you know, believing in someone a thousand percent. That is putting your all behind someone else. That is pure companionship. Like that's amazing. Yeah, like what a person and uh, what a gamble. <laughs> it's pretty nuts, right? Like. Um... I don't know that if maybe she wasn't a creative yeah. person, right? Like if she wasn't also a filmmaker or doing stuff like along those lines, I mean, maybe they would have survived all of this, but like, they seem like the uh, sound of music family, right? Like the they're just traps, like this yeah. troop. Yeah. That go around <laughs> making movies as a family together and like making pasta in the middle of storms and doing like performances like just in front of each other for our own amusement to kill time and, and all that. And then in the meanwhile, like we're making Hollywood movies. <laughs> so a couple other things I want to mention that I learned from this. Uh, I had obviously seen Apocalypse Now, you know, some cut of it, right? But the first cut I really sat down and watched was the Redux. Okay. And the whole French colonial scene 
blew my mind because it like it takes you out of the movie for a little bit and it's almost like and they mention it here like like a trip in a time machine um and they really go into it in this doc and i imagine in 91 when you have never seen that scene and if you're a fan of apocalypse now because it's only on the redux version mm-hmm. and you see it here and how much time he's devoting to it he has some great wine lines right he's like the white wine should be ice cold the red wine should be 40 degrees like the the, the french oh, right. the french if they showed up here would would be jealous of the party we're throwing here and you see him directing and he, and he then he complains like oh we didn't get the actors we wanted despite like 30 seconds before they're like oh don't fly the actors in from france like get them from singapore get them from places close like he's almost like it doesn't matter who the actors are and like he says it to the actors, and I don't know if it's just cut this way, but he's like, yeah, this isn't working. I'm going to cut the whole sequence out. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, can you... Can you if, if I'm him, I would say that behind the scenes. I'm like, all right, let's just finish it up. But, but Brian, that is more signs of someone who's not well, you know? And whether whether it's a movie that the experience that has driven him to like that, or that's just the guy he is when he's making movies... I don't know, but like it just one way or the other, like at this point in time, like, you know, he's got no filter, like he's got no no sort of social barriers, like he is not professional. None of this is on a professional level right now. So you just you don't basically tell the actors like, thanks for wasting my time for the the last like day and a half or whatever. Like, it's just so out there yeah like it just doesn't seem like some guy who's got his wits with him it's bizarre the actors look at him like you serious (laughs) and and i'm with you i fucking love that sequence i i think you cut out a lot of other stuff for the movie to put that back in the theatrical cut because i think that proves a point that needs to be proven which is like other people feel like they have the right to be there like it's not just like america coming in being like we're here we we want to be here now at vietnam or the vietnamese saying like we're here to defend our land it's also these french fuckers being like we're here too like we belong here also like we're we're staying like you're gonna have to kill us or kick us out or whatever drag us kicking and screaming but like it's about it sort of has like this sort of rights issue going on throughout it that that yeah, I think, like, yeah. Not that we support the, helps. Not that we support those French people, but like it's no, no. I'm not. Yeah, because I don't support what like America's doing here either. Really, you know. So it, it, I think it's just the same thing on another level. Like it's a more pacifistic thing at, at their stage. You know, they're more just standing their ground at this point. But like, I feel like it. It sort of proves. It, it elaborates the point of the movie better. I hope we talk more about this when we do the Redux. But I always saw it as. On the home front, and even for the soldiers in the war, they questioned why they were there. And for me, just as a student of history, one of the biggest reasons for that questioning was it wasn't our colony, right? Like, yeah, it's a French colony and it's French colonialism. And I don't think enough Americans see the Vietnam War as an anti-colonialism war, which it was, right? Like, we just sort of took over for the French. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, one of the only movies that, in, in a very, f- I don't want to say fun, but, like, an interesting way, reminds you that this problem, the chaos that these uh, soldiers are in and the entire country of Vietnam, like, there are, it has a longer history. There are other parties here that 
they're overlooked, they're ignored, not because, you know, they're marginalized, but it was just, things had gotten so chaotic, people forgot why they started fighting in the first place. At least, yes. at least the American side, right? Yes, yes, but it just gives, I just like it because, yeah, it, even though it's just a peak, it, it shows that it's more complicated than you can realize, than you realize. Like, there's more levels at play here than we even have time to get into, you know? <laughs> like, the movie would really love to do the movie about this, but it's got more spectacle to get back to and everything. But, like, I, I adore that sequence. I very much look forward to going more in-depth uh, about that uh, at a later date. Absolutely, absolutely. So, in terms of stuff in the ending, because it does focus, like you said, a lot on Brando, a lot on Dennis Hopper, who's definitely on drugs the entire time. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, just quickly speaking on drugs, Freddie Forrest is interviewed a lot. And sorry, what's the actor who plays like uh, Lan- uh, Lance, the surfer guy? Oh yeah, yeah. He's uh, oh. uh, Sam Bottoms, and Sam Bottoms. He's like so honest. He's like, yeah, I was smoking weed. Yeah, I was drinking, but I was doing some other stuff, harder stuff. And he's like not going to answer first, but then he's like. Yeah, I was doing speed and all this other thing. <laughs> yeah. He admits it was like partly to get into the character, but when you watch the movie, he he does look fucked up for most of the time, and I don't know what's acting yep. and what's not. A lot of again, a lot of drug use on set. I don't think from Francis, obviously, but uh, f- from the actor, sort of getting into character. Francis might be uh, on like Zoloft. <laughs> um, I love the part where they bring John Milius back. To sort yes. of save the screenplay, because Francis is like, I don't know how to end this. I don't know. I don't know what this is. We got here. Brando's on set, and Brando, like, he's the one insisting that he wants a quick shoot, yet he's the one who doesn't want to shoot at all. Mm-hmm. He's, like, talking about the character for days. They're ready to film, and they're just, like, talking about it. And, and like, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? At one point, uh, Coppola says that all he asked him to do was read Heart, Heart of Darkness, and it's obvious that Brando hasn't read Heart of Darkness. But Milius comes in to sort of save the screenplay, and he's a, so honest. And He's like, I met with Francis, and I walked out of that meeting thinking we were going to win a Nobel Prize for this screenplay. He, <laughs> he had convinced me of what we were doing here. And it, I just love that, because like, you think that like the guy who wrote the original screenplay is going to be like, no, 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 this is why, what I originally meant. But instead, yeah, nope. <laughs> no, I love it too because you know, I mean, at least we forget. You know, he's he was part of that Zoetrope crew of writers. Like, I think he was part of the Box of Eight scripts. Yeah, you know, Apocalypse Now, right? So, like, he goes. They go so far back. I could see that more of a collaborative kind of uh, relationship when it came to creating. And also I bet Milia showed up and, and saw the state of Francis and was like, finally, Francis is <laughs> where I need him. Right. Like, that's what I yeah, like too. now I can real, now we can really work this thing where it needs to be. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, well, we could talk about this when we do all the cuts of this film, but the ending was supposed to be this like heroic sort of, I would say similar to, to Kubrick's um, full metal jacket, as you mentioned, a lot of people have talked about that movie, how like the second half sort of turns, especially the end of the second half, it sort of turns into like a John Wayne sort of film, and and I think it's oh bit... yeah yeah, and that whole thing with the with the sniper at yeah. the end that is so like yeah it's so just like it's got so much adrenaline and then so much like 
anxiety to it, right? It's very sort of, you could say that's very like kind of Hollywood action. Yeah, and, and I think this was supposed to have a similar thing too, and, it, and again, it definitely doesn't. The endings are different in different versions, but we don't have, we don't sort of have to get into that. Uh, again, this is where we see the huge Francis breakdown, or we hear it. And one of the things that like stuck out at me was Francis saying that people think he works better in crisis, and how that's not necessarily true. And even Francis today has talked about that, and he said like that's not true because The Godfather Two was some of the best easiest filming that he's ever done it was like epic but there was no crisis on that on that production at all so it's almost like a myth about him that <laughs> yeah going back to what you said mike where the actors are are using him as their rock and they see the crisis but they're like oh no no we're making something great here because this is the guy who's made the godfather that's what they're saying but in reality it's all falling apart <laughs> yeah. and there's something so comforting about that as like just the normal guy right like um not that it makes that not that it like takes anybody down a notch or anything like that but again it just makes everybody so much more relatable when you see them open and honest and 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 recalling like a traumatic experience i guess it's hard not to be honest about recalling trauma right um especially for entertainment's sake so I appreciate that. It does get dark here, though. Like, he's clearly even getting suicidal. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just getting dark. Like, it starts off pretty shady, <laughs> if you ask me. There's that famous photo of him pointing the gun to his head. I'm not going to repost that photo, because while it is an epic photo, it could be triggering to some people. Like, I understand why it's kind of triggering to me, to be honest with you. But yeah. he is talking about just basically ways to end his life and maybe he's being dramatic but it's still he doesn't know how to end this film and we don't even sort of get a conclusion in this doc it just like sort of flashes to it doesn't have like a heroic ending right like you know there's moments with the tribe and there's stuff like that here or there the true ending of this doc is sort of like a flash forward to the movie coming out and it's like yeah it made a lot of money yay yeah, the movie we finished the movie. It came out in theaters. The end. Well, before we get to the, like the ending, ending Dakota, Dakota, if you, will. if you will. Was there anything else we missed that you want to talk about? Uh, nothing that we can't save for when we talk about the actual movie. I feel yeah, because everything else I want to mention has to do with like specific scenes in Apocalypse Now, and not so much about like scenes in the behind the scenes documentary stuff. So. Um, oh, just maybe the tiger incident. Oh, and, yeah, you know, yeah. Never get off the boat like that for real. Like the guys really didn't want to get off the boat after a while because Francis insisted on like a, a live tiger in that sequence. So Yeah. And, and like the tiger trainer was even like, yeah, sometimes he does snap at you. and Right. Yeah. Freddie was saying he's got like scars all over him and like he's not walking right anymore. And it's like he's been mauled four or five times. <laughs> It's like, Jesus, man, like you can't, I think they got so lucky they didn't have like a Twilight Zone movie incident here. Oh, yeah. You know? Good call. Like that's, that's one of my takeaways here. Like Francis was a bit irresponsible. Um, now, should we, I guess, feel guilty? Not to have an essay question on you, Mike, at this point of the podcast. but That's okay. All right. Should we feel guilty enjoying in art that was made this way. And I guess my thoughts are, 
I'd say no, because all the parties involved seem to, that we know of at least, seem to be okay with it. One, and two, like so much art is made through struggle. But I could see someone being like, wow, watching this documentary makes me enjoy Apocalypse Now less. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Okay. So, first and foremost, I think like, there is something to be said that everybody sort of consented in a large degree, you know, like, especially the people who came back to talk on this documentary. So, you know, the film, it's not like the film's illegal to watch or anything like that. I'd feel worse if it was like a snuff film, you know, but it's not, but that's the thing. Like, you know, it's not that. Okay. Like we are saying like, maybe there weren't on the level every minute, making this movie that they would be if they were on someone else's watch, but they weren't There's, This is an independent film, you know, and sometimes you got to cut corners. And I think everybody understood that about this, if they wanted to make this the way they wanted to make this, they had to endure more than they're used to with a regular movie. And then that goes into the suffering end of it, which like all great art is derived from, you know, suffering, uh, on multiple levels for multiple parties, depending on the size of the project. Okay. And like, you know, Van Gogh cut off a fucking year. Can I not enjoy his art more because of the sacrifice he made uh, having to do that or something? No, like I actually think I will enjoy the movie more knowing what it took to create it. Right. Like appreciating it at least more, you know, like, yes, this is a dark film at times and it's difficult, but like, it's still put out as entertainment and that's what it is. It's entertaining and it's informative. And it kind of is one of those things that sets the record straight to a degree so that when you do watch the movie, you understand what was going on better. So you're not watching it going like, Holy shit. Like, was this safe? Was this con- you know, like, okay? Was this whatever? And it's like, no, it wasn't safe. Uh, it wasn't okay. It, it was totally insane. So I think context is always important, you know, and I think that this is the best context you could have to preparing yourself for watching this movie. So I don't know. I hope that answers your question sufficiently. Yeah, because like how many things, if we truly knew how the sausage was made, you know, would we enjoy it more? And I think art is one of those things that sometimes, you know, as long as people are consenting uh, and are sort of complicit with it, right, like that you know i don't know like it's i definitely want to watch apocalypse now more not to be as long-winded as i just was though is like i just truly enjoy films about the process okay and like whether it be a documentary or a narrative or whatever like it always gets me more excited to re-watch the movie they're just they're talking about so and especially when they're not what you had mentioned before just like the rosy behind the scenes featurettes that <laughs> these are the ones that are common on disney plus right like everything was great and when there's adversity it's like silly adversity right like it's good to get the realness out of this one this was a real or at least felt that, real documentary that is a great album name silly adversity silly adversity would be a great <laughs> album name <laughs> all right here are the other three things i have in my notes iconic line apparently when Brando says i swallowed a bug did, oh really? Did, did you catch that? That's in like a. There's a couple other movies that'll reference that, including Goodwill Hunting. Oh, is that what that I swallowed a bug is from? I've heard that pop up. Apparently, once in a while. yeah. Like it, it comes from this because Brando's like deep into the character and it's just like oh, I, I swallowed a bug, you know. Like, 
<laughs> on that note, Tropic Thunder is not a good enough movie to do a podcast just on it, but you could see so much influence in the in the comedy film Tropic Thunder in this documentary here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, it has influence in a lot of Vietnam War stuff, but this is like like Brando not having read the script or the book and just like trying to get into that character, uh, not knowing like the true ending of things, shooting in yeah. the jungle like Alan that. Partridge going insane, like <laughs> yeah. trying to wrangle everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I call no. him Alan Partridge, but <laughs> you know, who I mean, yes, he, he's uh, Steve Coogan. We've talked about him here on the show. The man from the trip. I always forget he's in that movie. Knowing me, Steve Coogan. Knowing <laughs> you, Brian Rodriguez. The last thing I'll mention, and this blew my mind. For whatever reason, the coda to this film is Francis talking about the future of filming. It's like cameras are getting smaller. And like I think he says something like, I, I, I hope in the future that some like fat little girl in Ohio like yeah. borrows her father's camera which again let's think of it a phone today and iphone and she becomes the new mozart he says he thinks at that point professionalism will die and that film will become a true art so i don't know if he still feels like this today but we're kind of here and to me this says that francis feels that film needs to escape this studio system and it also needs to escape just the equipment and everything it takes to make a movie that when technology gets to the place where we can just film things with a thing in our pocket, essentially, which is what we can do now, that will be the true art. And how poetic and prophetic that is to like, silly as it is TikTok today, right? Yeah, dude. I mean, his granddaughter, right? (laughs) Yep. Is a trailblazer in this very medium or version of this medium. This is what he's always been on about. He must have had the most traumatic experience back when he was, where was he at? Was it Warner Brothers originally when he had his deal or whatever, like making Finnegan's Rainbow or whatever the fuck he was working on back then? It must have scarred him so hard because ever since the day he met George Lucas, it's all been about we need our own place and get away from these guys that think backwards so that we could do what we want, how we want, when we want, the way we want to without any of this nonsense interference. And you look at George, like I feel like he's been the other half of Zoetrope this whole time building these technologies. Like we probably wouldn't have iPhones if it wasn't for a lot of the breakthroughs that like ILM has done or like, you know, like the, the, the way that we could record so easily online and stuff because of like some of the sound breakthroughs that Lucas sound might've come up with, you know, I'm just saying like, he is the tools that he's making the tools that Francis is talking about. Right. So I agree with you. Like we are in the future that he has predicted and this isn't the first time he said stuff like this. Like we've went over clip, I believe a couple episodes ago when we were doing clips. Right. And he was talking about like, you know, in the future, like anyone will be able to make a movie and you won't need a studio and you will just be able to sell it on your own. And like, you know, you can just have your friends together and it won't matter because it's an independent thing. And it's like so right. And uh, it's crazy. It reminds me that he is an artist more so than he is a filmmaker. Right. And and artists are fallible, complex people. 
Um, you know, they're not always perfect. And I'm just so happy that we're doing this podcast and so happy, Mike, that the next thing we'll do is we will tackle Apocalypse Now. I, don't, I made this call, judgment call, but I want to start with the Redux because there's so much in here. The Redux is the biggest one, the one that has the most stuff, and I feel like that's the one we could look yeah. back on. I have some other reasons as well, but like when we think about this documentary, we can look at the Redux and, and really get in the nitty gritty of it. So if you want to fo- yeah. follow along at home, watch the Redux with us. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I like that idea too of like we're watching the one with the most footage, so then we can just keep kind of like subtracting with every with every version um maybe we'll watch uh, less and less until we'll watch the theatrical one last or something but um yeah this is interesting like i'm looking forward to it get going on the apocalypse now boat here we go well once again to do godfather tropes sounds a bit perverse today but mike end the show Oh, uh, I guess we're going to still have to leave the gun and take the cannoli i don't know if there's an apocalypse now yeah. version so um, I don't know. Leave the napalm. Leave the gun. Leave the leave the napalm and take the puppy. Oh my god! How's that? They take the, the surfboard. The yeah, the puppy. Oh, so many good things. I, I can't wait. I can't wait. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end. My only friend. The end. Of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end, no safety or.